your favorite race? Yeah, because people love it, and also and, uh, like pink. This race is always pink. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 14 of the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe only a semi pro cyclist wears their sunnies on the outside of their helmet straps. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who is into pink. The podcast, it is on iTunes and you can subscribe by going to semiprocycling.com and clicking on subscribe in the menu. Also, if you do like the show, please take some time out to give us a review. It means the world to me and it shows the world that you love us too. All right, so straight to the news. Giro di Lombardia rounds out the pro cycling season for me and many of the riders. Yes, it's been a tough one for me. I wouldn't say that there has been many surprises, though. Boonen won the Spring Classics. Cancellara didn't. Wiggins cleaned up the tour in dominant yet injurane-esque fashion. Boring. Vino won the Olympics and Gilbert won the Worlds. That was it. In a nutshell, highlights for me, Heijerdale winning the Giro, Contador winning the Welter, and Gilbert winning the Worlds. Well, you could probably tell if you listened to my podcast last week, I was pretty amped about that win. Now, I am still dead set serious about getting to the tour next year. The route is going to be released on October 24. If you are keen to meet, go for a ride, drink beer, anything, please get in touch. I'm also keen for advice. I'm going to admit it now, I'm a total noob when it comes to live tour watching and any advice will be welcome with open arms, especially if it's about the tour. Accommodation, where to stay, where to ride to, where to watch from, anything like that will be so welcome. But mostly, I just want to meet some peeps there into what I'm into and we can hang out, go for cool rides, enjoy the sunshine, enjoy France, whatever it takes. So... Think about it, people, and get back to me. The nuts and bolts this week. Solving travel challenges. There are many challenges. Immunization and vaccinations and jet lag and diet and acclimatization. I really want to get an idea of how the traveling cyclists can stay on top of their training and performance while they're in these ever-changing environments. To help out this week, I asked Beck Henderson onto the show. Beck is an under-23 World Cup mountain biker from Australia. She rides for the Anytime Fitness Trek team alongside her partner Dan McConnell, amongst others that are in the team. But these two are the ones that competed in a full MTB World Cup series. They're both currently Australian national XCO champions, Beck in under 23 and Dan in elite. Beck added five under 23 women's World Cup podiums and a second in the series to her international Palmares this year which led to an Olympic berth at just 20 years old. Considering Beck and Dan are primarily self-supported when it comes to race organisation, it's no mean feat what they had to do in terms of organisation and preparation for racing. So considering all of this, I thought Beck would be the perfect person to talk to about the challenges of travelling when you are a competing cyclist. Now, while the international athlete is a global traveller, for those of you that aren't regular competitors on the world circuit... I was looking for ideas that we can adapt to our modest travel requirements, especially if you are in a car for six hours the day before a race, then six hours straight after a race. We've all been there. Any tips are going to help in this regard. So let's get to it. Beck, welcome to the show. Thank you, Damien, for having me here. 
In previous years, you traveled to Europe. So in 2010 and 11, you did travel to Europe to do some races, but I, I believe this year was the first year that you completed the entire World Cup series. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I've traveled to Europe every year since my first World Championships in 2008, but um, this year is the first time that I've completed the full World Cup series. It um, involved traveling to South Africa, various parts of Europe, and also America and Canada. It was a pretty drawn-out season for the best part of six months. Because the big thing about the World Cup, definitely like you said, that you're traveling to South Africa and then you have not only the Europe, but you're going to America and Canada. So you're crossing a lot of time zones and there's a lot of things to consider. Today, I want to tap into some of that experience that you gain from traveling and competing in so many different places because the challenges such as jet lag, diet and acclimatization are big things to consider when planning for these events. Your base in Europe We were staying on the German side of the Swiss-German border in a town called Bad Sackingen. Yep. Um, So it's just 30 minutes up the the Rhine River from Basel. Yeah, it was the perfect place to be based for all the German races and the Swiss races, and it was really central. So the German and Swiss races were the smaller races that you would prepare for, for World Cup races, is that correct? Yeah, there's um, the Swiss have a, a national series which is really, really big. Um, they get huge numbers to their races and they're always um, really good quality fields. So, um, you know, there's only seven World Cup races over the years and um, these are really good for helping you improve your world ranking um, and also just to see how your form is and get more race experience. Yeah, okay. Now I just want to delve into just the setup that you had in Europe regards to the team. So your team, do you have a team manager or support personnel that travel with you to any races? No. So um, Dan McConnell and I, um, we're on the Anytime Fitness Trek team in Australia, but we're the only two on the team who this year travelled, oh, actually, that's a lie, Jenny King and her partner travelled separately from us. So Dan and I based ourselves in um, Germany for the six months and, um, yeah, it's just the two of us. We we um, bought a car and hired, uh, rented a place to live for the time and, um, yeah, we just fully self-sufficient, the two of us. So all the preparation was just done between the two of you? Yeah, so everything from booking the flights and the like buying the car and the accommodation, um, all of our race entries and everything is all organised by us and um, we decide where we're going to be and when. So it's, you know, we have the flexibility but we also have a lot of hard work in making sure everything runs smoothly and that we're organised. I can definitely sense that um, it would take a lot of extra energy to get things prepared. So saying that, you definitely did really well in regards to such consistent race results and coming in second in the World Cup is, is pretty amazing. Can you sort of run us through a typical competition week? So what it would look like travelling and training-wise leading up to an event? So I'm just trying to get an idea of because you were self-supported, how you would get to an event and then how you would work around training. Because I do have down here that you were doing 900-kilometer drives to some events there and back, which which sounds pretty epic to me. Yeah, so say for the major races is a, is a World Cup race, um, the preparation definitely starts like a good month or two before when you're planning all the accommodation. Um, the 
the towns sell out super fast and it's difficult to find accommodation if you're not organised for these races. So um, there is a little bit of stress in that and um, then you, you've you got a bit of stress about getting something affordable but that that's also uh, good enough to like good quality. So um that's always in the back of your mind when you when you take the long drives to uh to the World Cup races. Um so we usually go for for the weekend we would arrive on on the Monday for the Saturday Sunday race. Um Dan and I were lucky that for most of the World Cup races I would be on the Saturday and then Dan would be on the Sunday. So um while our training schedules didn't always match up um, so we would be practicing the course alone most of the time. Um, it made it work in well with the feeding. Dan would be supporting me on the Saturday for my race and then trying to stay off his feet as much as he possibly could and then uh, I would return the favour again on the Sunday for his race. So how about after the events um, when you had to drive back fairly quickly, I imagine? Were you driving back after the Sunday or did you wait till the Monday? What were you doing in regards to any warm downs or um, were you taking quick spins like on the Monday morning or something? Um, well, depending on – a couple of the World Cups are back-to-back. So if it was um, – we did one drive, we went from Czech Republic and then th- through Germany in, into France. Um, so from that, we left on the Sunday afternoon after immediately after Dan's race and drove halfway. Um so, you know, he got to do a short warm down, but nothing nothing that would really have done too much good. Um, yep. And then for me, generally after my race, I would try and do a bit of a cool down, but uh, it's difficult because you want to get back to the accommodation and make sure that uh, everything's good and Dan's off his feet and ready to prepare for his race. So uh, pretty much uh, 15 minutes after I crossed the line of my my race so we try and focus and then make sure we can do everything that we can so that Dan's ready for his uh his race so uh sometimes when I was on the podium in the world cup it was it was difficult because uh you know the they take a little while to put the presentation on and then um you know Dan's got to help me clean up and then it's a bit of a rush and stress it sounds um yeah you're just basically trying to make the best of the situation very ad hoc or whatever when would you resume normal training? So if you are jumping in the car straight away after an event, I'm assuming you're getting to the next place or back to your base, you know, one or two days later. Are you fine to start training again then or are you doing more recovery at that point? Depending on the time, for this year it was the first four World Cups was so important for the Olympic selection. So um, basically we'd have a rest day and then a sort of longer recovery day um on the Tuesday and then we'd get straight back into the training to make sure we were still getting the best of our time like training wise so um in the first couple of months there was not a lot of rest days um but after the the most crucial world cups we sort of started to um we had a, a almost a week's break after the fourth world cup mm-hmm. the, we we always made sure we had good rest but then we were trying to use our time as productively as we could Okay, so just kind of broadening the travel here and and talking a bit about changing time zones. In Europe, when you're driving, I imagine the time zones aren't too crazy, but you had to fly over to America and then Canada. You had a super long day when you were traveling from Zurich Airport at 8 a.m. and then arriving in Montreal at midday. And then you wrote on your blog that 
you actually were feeling the effect of the change in time zones at the World Cup race in Canada? Um, We actually did a race the Sunday day before we left for Canada on the Monday morning, so it was a it was a really late night's packing and um and then a very early morning. So uh, the yeah, I definitely definitely felt the the time zone difference going going over there. Would there be any specific things that you can do to prepare for time zones? I think everybody has their sort of idea of the, the best way to travel or the best times to sleep on the planes and things. Um, I guess it depends on what time your flight is. And um, that was my first time going over to America and Canada. So uh, I don't have the most experience in that department either. But personally, I just like to get as much sleep on the plane as I possibly can. I, I don't really find there's any point in changing your routine before you leave because uh your body's usually really confused like you know there's the time and then you haven't had a proper night's sleep and um things like that so i i'm not sure you can prepare i think you just have to be conscious of it and uh make sure that as soon as you get there you are going to bed at you know normal times nine or ten o'clock or whatever and setting an alarm to get up at the proper time in the morning yeah there's definitely a lot of theories out there as far as the best way to do it and i think you're right that it's it's really a matter of just what works for you because it, you know at, at the end of the day if you are in a situation like like you said when you're racing one day and you've got to prepare at night and then you're flying out the next day there's no way that you can spend a week sort of slowly changing time zones and things to do it and that's a perfect world only I think. The next factor is especially in big races in Europe is the acclimatization and specifically I'm talking about here like racing at altitude. Do you do anything specifically to acclimatize for altitude before higher races? Well, there's yeah, that's another thing that's got so many different theories. Um, we're lucky enough to be quite good friends with the national coach for Switzerland, who was um, the na- their national coach for up until Olympics. Um, and he's sort of trying to teach us quite a bit about altitude. And um, the Swiss are strong believers in altitude for their training. Yep. But the the last World Cup we did was at very high altitude. I'm not. I, can't remember off the top of my head what it was but um we just made sure we got there with um you know a good weeks to spare before the race basically don't do any training for the first three days I think that's when your body uh really struggles and then um the last uh three or four days we just sort of got into our normal pre-race routine and um blew the cobwebs out of the system and uh yeah we Dan and I both had good races uh training like this um I think a couple of other Aussies went there without enough time to spare and really felt the effects and felt really weak at the altitude yeah I think it's definitely something that riders that aren't used to that terrain need to think about before they're going there especially Australians because you know what are the highest races that we have Mount Buller or something maybe (laughs) the highest and 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 you just you you wouldn't even think about it like ultimately I I think you're talking two or three weeks if you if you're not used to it but it sounds like you got up to speed fairly quickly another big factor is food and especially when you're traveling to or living in another country you're going to face a lot of food challenges when you're the ones actually buying the food are there any staples that you actually look for 
that are the same in every single country? Or what's the approach that you take to food when you're moving around so much? Well, because we have our base in Germany, where like that's part of the reason we choose to live in Germany because um, they have got really high quality food, and um, you know it's it's really similar to what we have in Australia. So um, shopping isn't too difficult. Uh, you you learn words, and um, that's the same as eating in a restaurant. You have to make sure you are you can you can you know enough say German words to read the menu. Um, that's that makes life a lot easier. But, um, you know, when traveling across to countries like Czech Republic, um, you know, we always make sure we're really organized. We buy mostly all of the meat and things like that in Germany and freeze it up before we go. So uh, it's small things like that. You know, it's a bit safer or you're going to have good quality food. I haven't been down to places like Spain, but, uh, you know, you hear things and you want to be careful. Is there anything specifically in Germany that you've picked up in regards to the way they feel themselves? Like an example is what I found in Thailand that I was buying sticky rice and pork. Is there anything like that in Germany that you're able to find? I think it's the Europeans have quite different sort of eating habits. They eat a lot of cheese and a lot of yogurt and um, that's generally not saying that sits it's too good in our stomachs. For Dan and I, we use all soy products and um, we avoid the lactose as much as possible. So, Because uh, I've made quite good friends with one of the Swiss girls and I found it quite difficult to relate to some of the foods she was eating. Um, yep. Post-ride, she would have, you know, muesli and yogurt and things like this and it's just totally different to, to how we um, eat. Okay. So when it comes to preparing, you said that you buy a lot of your foods if you can, if you're sort of driving somewhere. Do you ever eat out at restaurants when you're away? We try to avoid it. Um, you know, in the lead up to a big race, it's um, important to keep your diet good and um, eat foods that you know are good for you. And I think when you're going out to restaurants, it's unless you're getting just a salad, it's quite difficult to get um, good vegetables. So uh, it's it's much easier to, to just do the shopping and then cook when you finish your ride. And um, often eating out can be a bit of a hassle. And when you, because often when you're traveling, you do have to eat out. So um, when we have the opportunity to cook, we make sure we do. And that's probably one of the most important things when we're booking our accommodation before a big race. Yeah, okay. I've got one last question. It's kind of related to the topic, but I, you know, I had to ask because another element that is underrated by inexperienced competitors is the excitement and distraction of a big event. And this year you actually competed at one of the biggest events, the Olympics. What strategies did you take into that to avoid getting overwhelmed by the experience? Um, I actually went into the Olympics pretty much without a plan. I wanted to, um, I guess for me, I, was, I wasn't I was going for a gold medal and I had no pressure on me to get the most amazing results. So um, I guess for me, it was a bit more about gaining the experience and um, taking in the atmosphere and um, maybe not getting carried away, but um, making sure I was sort of enjoy, enjoying it and Obviously, I was still completely focused on on the race, but um, you know, learning the distractions that are going to get to you, and um, you know, all this is going to help me for future Olympic Games, and um, yeah, so I, I went in with an open mind, and um, you know, wanting to wanting to see what the Olympics was about. So you got to explore a little bit while still staying focused, but not having the pressure to um, to totally ignore all the. Uh 
the cool things about the whole experience? Yeah, well, the Olympic course was almost an hour away from where the athlete village was. And I think for me, that was probably a good thing because, um, you know, you would get on the bus and go to the course and then that's when you switch on about the race and thinking about the course and the lines and what you're going to do to prepare and how you can be organised. And then so you go and practice the course and whatnot, but then you can come back to the village and just sort of switch off and think about other things. And I think that was actually probably something that helped me. Um, I didn't think about the race too much. And then, um, you know, the day before I was like, oh, wow, the race is tomorrow. And then the more I thought about it, the more nervous I got. But um, there were plenty of distractions to um, help you yeah to distract yourself from uh the excitement and nervousness of uh racing the next day yeah i bet so uh, that's it beck there have been some great answers i think there's some really useful information tucked in there um where is the best place that people can follow you or they can get in touch with you i know you've got a blog and i have been reading it and i've got to say that i really actually enjoy reading it because your insights into um, your racing and the way that you break your racing down which goes a lot with your approach to racing it i find it very interesting and i really enjoy it but um is that the best place where people can find you yeah, I've been a little bit slack on my blog lately. I haven't done a post since Olympics. Um, but yeah, that's where, like, apart from lately, that's where I, I do post all, all of my personal traveling and racing adventures. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's probably the best place. All right, cool. Well, thank you very much. No worries. And thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I just wanted to mention again some of Beck's nuggets of gold, the ones that really stood out to me and, and I'll be keeping in mind. The first couple around assessing itinerary and competition schedule, booking accommodation as soon as possible, even months in advance. If we're talking about mountain bike races, we're talking about generally smaller towns and things that are going to fill out and the good places are going to fill out early. So getting on those, especially because in your planning, you're wanting to book something with cooking facilities to ensure that you're having the best food possible before races. There are two major points in that area that popped out to me. Altitude training, don't train for the first three days at altitude. If you're serious about your racing, you've got to get there minimum a, w- a week before. You know, in my mind, I was reading about two and three weeks, but Beck put it straight, a week, three days, don't do anything. All you're doing is full-time trying to adjust to the altitude. Now, just noting altitude is usually considered anything over 2,000 meters. And the final three, identifying potential nutrition issues, brushing up on the language and at least knowing enough to understand menus. I've been there. I'm doing that every single day at the moment. But I think it's very important when you are trying to figure out what you're going to eat. Otherwise, you're going to get something totally wrong, totally irrelevant, and maybe even eat it anyway, which is probably bad news. Buying food such as meat and freezing it if you are unsure about what the new place has to offer. I think this is pretty good if you are driving from place to place. In certain countries, you know, like Australia and America, you can generally assume that you can get what you want, but not always. So even doing this in places that you are kind of familiar with, the culture, and you you know what a butcher looks like and how to order meat, that's pretty important as well and could play a really important role. And the final one, watch out while in Spain eating Spanish food. Sorry, Spain. I'm just taking the piss. All right, so let's get to the tech hacks and products section. Cleaning helmets. Well, cleaning helmets is as easy as wearing it into the shower. So all I'm talking about here, at the end of the ride, if it's all muddy and dirty... 
take it into the shower, put shampoo on your head, a bit of a scrub, then put the helmet back on your head while you got the shampoo on there. So while it's on there, moving it around a little bit, use some of the shampoo to scrub down those straps. They get so grotty. Now, while, once you've done that, take it off, give the outside shell a clean with all the rest of the soap. And then the most important part here is getting in and scrubbing the pads and getting the soap out of everything. The soap is the area here. If it sticks in the helmet, it's going to stink worse than it did going into the clean. So make sure that you get rid of all soap particles. It's going to be smelling beautiful, Rosie, depending on what shampoo you use. I don't know what mine is. Mine smells like flowers. So anyway, it's going to, once it comes out and you give it a bit of a dry with your towel, just leave it in the hottest room that you have. Well, not necessarily the hottest, but a hot room. Otherwise, if you leave it overnight and you have to use it the next day and it's winter, it's going to be wet and it's going to be cold. It's going to suck. Now, that quote from the top of the show, it's Fumi Beppu from Green Edge talking about his love of pink and the Giro. Yes, of course, pink and the Giro. I thought it was a pretty funny little quote there. And that's it. So I hope you enjoyed the show. Until next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. Je pense que cette année, j'avais une bonne possibilité. Je pas en bonne condition, c'est très bon dans ce moment. J'avais fait un bon tour d'Italie et c'est un bon travail pour, pour, pour aller faire un tour de France. Pour moi, c'est parti très très bien dans ce moment. J'espère de continuer. Enfin,